Welcome to Heaven and Earth. I am joined by Craig Carter. And I don't know if you knew this, the first time, my first podcast for, for this podcast was with you. We did the number the number one episode together. Right. And so I don't know what this is now, like number 50 or something like that. <laughs> but we talked about your first book um, on interpreting scripture. And this is your second book, Contemplating God with a Great Tradition, that we can kind of dive into a little bit today. Um. Just if someone doesn't know you, do you have like a 30 second elevator pitch about who you are that might be helpful for listeners? I grew up a conservative Baptist in Maritime Canada. I uh, ended up pastoring for seven years, two churches. Then I did my PhD under John Webster at uh, Toronto School of Theology. My major theologian was Bart, wrote my thesis on Yoder, got into relational theology and uh, uh, people like Colin Gunton and John Zizioulis and uh, Miroslav Wolf and Stanley Grins and all those kind of people. And then I um, started to write a book on the doctrine of God as uh, a social Trinitarian kind of book to under, where, where this, the nature of God under, undergirds our social ethics. So that was what I started out to write. And that's what this book was started out to be back about 15 years ago. And as I read the Church Fathers and as I read Patristics, I realized that the whole East versus West thing was wrong and that the, so the Cappadocians were not social Trinitarians and Augustine and the fourth century fathers were all together. And I realized that classical theism was uh, biblical. And so I, I renounced my relational theism and, uh, and uh, ended up writing the interpreting scripture book to defend the Nicene way of exegeting scripture mm -hmm. as a, uh, because the whole my my whole point was then going to be the 20th century supposed revival of Trinitarian theology wasn't really a revival of Nicene Trinitarian theology, but it was a massive revision. But then I was afraid people would say, yeah, but that's because we have modern historical criticism and the fathers were allegorizing and they interpreted it all wrong. They read Greek philosophy into the into the um, Bible. So uh, now we're overcoming that. So now so now so then I had to stop and really go into the hermeneutical question and I realized I had to, that was a separate book. So that that's why it turned into a separate book. And then this is the, the, the book as it finally, um, uh, the book, the one I started out to write originally. And then um, now I'm writing the third in the trilogy. It's turned into a trilogy. So uh, I say there's three legs to the stool. There's exegesis of Nicene theology, exegesis, doctrine arising from the exegesis and metaphysical implications of that doctrine, which in turn becomes the framework for further deeper exegesis. And, and so you need, so I'm, I'm, the whole project is to try and recover the Nicene way of doing theology. And um, that's what I'm doing right now. This year I'm writing the metaphysics book and uh, that will complete the trilogy. And that will be, um, that will lay the foundation for writing uh, for going forward, I'm, I'm going to write a short systematic theology next, and then eventually it all leads up to the Isaiah commentary because commenting on scripture is the highest form of theology. So that's my more than 30 second elevator pitch as to who I am. Great. Well, you, you and you narrate some of that at the beginning of uh, contemplating God as well. Um, I have a number of things I want to say, but I just want to note you, you kind of put something into my mind. So there's this book called Retrieving Nicaea that I'm, if you're on video, you can see it by mm -hmm. Kellogg Anatolius. And he makes the point that, you know, terminology like one nature, three persons, that's kind of like the after the fact conclusion wording. But underneath and prior to all of that, 
you have those concepts and ideas worked out deep into the exegetical mindset of the church fathers. And when you're talking about like you have this kind of Nicene exegesis, metaphysics, all this kind of stuff, I think sometimes we just assume that means, okay, one nature, three persons, you know, like that's it. But I think what you're talking about is an entire way of like being in the world, seeing how the world is, who God is, what it means to look at a text and to come to understand. Like there's a lot of things kind of are under, underneath the surface. Is that kind of what you're thinking as you're, as you're getting into this book and the next one? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that the world is, um, when we read scripture, there is a certain, we have a certain, we need to have a certain understanding of what it is we're reading. What is this text? Where did it come from? What is its purpose? What does it, what can we expect of it? What, what is it? And what is the, who is the reader? What does it mean to be a human being? Like, what what is a human being? And what is this place that we're in? Like, this world, is it is it a booming, buzzing confusion of chaos? Is it uh, ran, atoms randomly colliding with each other? Like, what is this world? So so the, the context of the, the metaphysical nature of reality, including what is the world, what is the reader, what is the text, and the relationship of all of that to God, is going, I believe that those things, that understanding is far more important to, um, to how we interpret scripture than any hermeneutical method or like the historical critical method or allegory or typology or prosopological exegesis or literary criticism or um, any of the, any of the so-called methods and and reading techniques that the church has used over the centuries. Um, in other words, hermeneutics cannot be reduced to a technique. And I think that people, the church, if you study the history of hermeneutics, the church has constantly reached out and taken techniques from the wider culture and brought them into service in, in reading scripture. But it's when those techniques, whether it's say prosopological exegesis that was used by the Greeks to, to uh, read Greek poetry, or whether it's, uh, modern literary criticism, whatever it is, when it's brought into the context in which Herman, in which reading of scripture is done, into this metaphysical world, this metaphysical, under, this understanding of the metaphysical situation and the reader and the text and, the, and God and the world, any technique is transformed by virtue of that. And, and we, we become, we, we, we are able to use these various techniques um, because the technique is not is not the most important thing. It's how we interact with the text in the context of this situation that is the most important thing. And where we start is not necessarily where we end up. That's the other fallacy that modern people have. They they think if you really interesting point. If you begin, usually think our method, you go through one step one, two, and three, then you get the product. You know. Yeah, or if you start in the wrong place, it's hopeless. Uh, people have been starting in the wrong place forever. And and uh, and yet the the result is still that the word of God breaks through. And how does this happen? Because it's a dynamic thing. It's not just a static thing. It's not a mechanical thing. It's not a method. It's really a spiritual battle. More than anything else, hermeneutics is about sanctification and faith. You know. Okay. I, I so many things I want to say. I'll just make a comment, then I'll I'll segue to kind of a question. The comment is: I think it's it's great that people define their method. That's 
inclined to do. But I also find that a lot of in, in academic study, it, it's basically just a book on method and another book on method. And you're like, well, <laughs> after a while, it's like, what are we doing here? Um, but here's the, here's the thing that I'm going to kind of push, kind of segue into a question is, I was talking to my wife last night and she heard something, uh, a podcast talking about Proverbs 8. And she learned from this podcast that uh, Arius and people use Proverbs 8 to talk about Christ. Okay, so why, why would that be significant to bring up? Well, I think it's interesting based on what you're, you're kind of talking about that you'll, you can look at a passage if you're a Christian before the 17th century. In 1 Corinthians one twenty four says that uh, Christ is the wisdom of God. And that's going to be obvious. It might be obvious to you that wisdom in Proverbs 8 is about the same referent. So tell me, I think you're kind of getting to something like this, that when you read scripture, you can actually see that the books, that the Bible is about one thing. There is a consistent reality behind the text or behind the wrong word. Uh, God is real is what I'm trying to say, <laughs> that the Bible talks about him, a real existent being. And uh, I'm reminded of reading like Athanasius, he'll read the, the word like light, then of course, God's light. So is Christ's light. And you know, all the passages in the Bible come together about light. And it's all about this single referent. Um, can you kind of talk about like, why would someone like today, that would be weird to do. Like if you're hearing a sermon in a Baptist church and someone says, Paul calls Christ the wisdom of God. Now turn to Proverbs 8, where we talk about Jesus. Like that's uncommon, right? So what is, why is that uncommon? Yeah, it's less it's less uncommon in preaching than it is Fair. in academic studies. Actually, um, that's one of my points in interpreting scripture: is that the church has retained uh, this kind of interpretation more so than the academy, and that's why the academy academy needs to learn from the church. Um, okay, when you when Paul refers to Christ as the wisdom of God in First Corinthians one twenty four, he's referring to something that is real. When an Old Testament text uh, refers to wisdom, it's referring to divine wisdom. There are two different conceptual moves that, that we make here. One move is to say that the text of 1 Corinthians 1 and Proverbs 8 are, are, are referring, to, are, are saying the same thing in the sense that one is referring to the other. But it's a different conceptual move to say that both texts are referring to a third thing, which they they are talking about, in, they're both talking about, the same wisdom of God, the same second person of the Trinity, the same Christ. Now, the, the question of hermeneutics is, should you take into account that, re -exist, that really existing third thing in interpreting the text? In other words, if you want to see a type or if we want to see a fulfillment, does one text have to be referring to the other text, to the exact idea in the other text, or could they both be referring to a third thing? This is a very big problem in hermeneutics, and a lot of people don't think it through on this level. And they, and they are, the early church is, is assuming that God is real and assuming there is a Christ, there is a second person of the Trinity, and that, and that. Christ is Christ. He's eternally the same. So that if an Old Testament writer refers to him, he's referring to the same thing, and a New Testament is referring to the same thing, and we're talking about the same thing. Um, if you transpose this into a 19th century um, Hegelian 
evolutionary concept, then you are then then it becomes very problematic to see how Proverbs eight and First Corinthians one could be talking about the same thing because because Proverbs eight reflects its own time and culture and its own grasp of the divine in a, in, in the with the limitations of that time, and Proverbs and First Corinthians one reflects a different time and we're in a third yet different time, and so the the difference of the evolutionary flow of the thought. And the change over time becomes the defining feature of the text. And that's what we're after, is to catch that uniqueness of that first centuryness of 1 Corinthians and the uniqueness of the Old Testament context or ancient Near Eastern context of Proverbs 8. And that's what we're after. And what modern people don't understand about pre-modern hermeneutics is that pre-modern hermeneutics wasn't after that. It was after the thing that is eternally in common to all the texts at all the different times. Yeah, there's there's a different way of approaching reality. And that's what you're talking about, I think, a little bit when you get to about metaphysics. So that might be a good a good time to turn to this. One thing I wanted to ask you, I'm gonna get clarity on from you, given your your writings and your podcasts and things that you've done, is, is you talk about you call I think neo-pagan uh, metaphysics, naturalism and all those kinds of things. I would like, if you could, I think it'd be helpful. Can you define, like you talk about post-Kantianism, like, what is it that you're saying? Like, if, if you were able to talk to someone who's not not academic, and you're able to describe what it is that they're doing and how they're viewing the world that is um, in contradistinction to how Athanasius or Paul viewed the world, what is it that is different between these two people that is so important to you? You mean what is the difference between naturalism and and whatever else, whatever the opposite? Yeah, of like reform, like yeah. I mean, reformed Thomism and, and modern naturalism, but like because you you often talk about this kind of like neo pagan metaphysics or naturalism or post Kantianism, all this kind of stuff. So what well, is it that? That's a pretty broad question, a dangerous question to ask somebody. Like, um, could go, I could take on. Oh, I knew where you want with this, but I, I'm thinking more like so. I'm talking to someone in my Bible study, and they've maybe you're a brand new believer and they view the world as a monistic naturalistic person. So, so how am I, I don't want to be mean to them, but how am I going to try to turn their brain into a new way of seeing things? Like what, what is it that they're born into that is wrong that they need to be grown out of? Well, in the book, I, I, I really try to keep pushing back backwards. I start with, I, I talk about modern, the modern, Ideas, but I go right back to to the Old Testament and the context of the Old Testament. The ancient Near Eastern context is a mythological culture, and matter is seen as eternal, or we don't know. But it's it was there at the beginning of our story. That's all we can tell you. And uh, and, and matter is in chaos, and and reality is fundamentally chaotic. And the myths are all about the gods who establish order in some way through violent conflict. And that becomes the basis of the social order. So believing in the myth, that's why we worship the gods. They keep order, then the crops keep producing, the field, the flocks keep uh, being fertile, and we we create a surplus food supply, and our population can grow, and we can get a big city and big army to take over the, take over the world. Like this is the whole the the gods keeping the chaos at bay is the key to everything. That's why we worship them. Um, and what I what I what I want to say is that the Bible 
has a conception of God that is, and that mythological idea is all over the world. So it's in China, India, ancient Near East, Greco-Rome, Norse mythology, you name it, everywhere you go, it's a mythological conception of the world. And the only place in the whole world where that's really challenged is Genesis 1-1, which is the most revolutionary sentence in the history of world literature. Because it says in the beginning, God created. So it presupposes two things. Number one, creation is not eternal. It had a beginning. And number two, God is eternal. So you now have the biggest possible contrast between God and the world. God is eternal and the world is has a beginning, which implies that it might have an end. It certainly implies that it has a, a direction or a telos. Um, it, it puts the world into a completely different perspective. The world is originally created good and evil comes into the world after the creation of the world through a defect that is not attributable to the creator himself. So this means that the, that the struggle that the myths talk about actually moves into history and Yahweh struggles against the chaos within history. So Yahweh overcomes the gods of Egypt and sets his people free and Yahweh is overseeing the, the Assyrian and Babylonian empires, etc. But Yahweh is, is transcendent. So really, it's the concept of the divine transcendent creator. Mm -hmm. and, and no matter how you define the cosmos, um, you can be a strict materialist or you can make some room for some ideal plane of existence. Some, uh, some, you, know, some, some, you can have a, what, what we would call supernatural. You can believe in angels or demons or, or heaven or um, a realm that is invisible to this world, but still a part of creation. You can believe in all that. And you still haven't got to the uniquely Christian idea of divine transcendence because the, the uniquely Christian biblical Genesis idea is that whatever exists of what, whatever form it takes, whatever shape it is, whatever nature it is, whether it's um, material or, or whether it's spiritual, whatever exists in reality, the totality of reality is the creation of God. And he was there before it was there and he brought it into being. That is, that is what makes Christianity unique. And, and if you go all over the world, any continent, any religion, any, any culture, the only place you will find this idea of divine transcendence is in places that have been influenced by the Old Testament. Yeah. And I mean, that, I, I want to say amen to that. Divine transcendence, so important. And I mean, you have a whole chapter in your book, Contemplating God of the Great Tradition on uh, creation ex nihilo, the idea that God created out of nothing. He is unique and transcendent. I think to kind of show how this works out, it might be useful to turn to a, a slightly polemical context just to kind of show the difference. Now, you talk about um, relational or, or social, uh, maybe relational theism. Is, is that the language you use? I can't remember. Relational? Is that right? well, I, I use relational theism as the umbrella term. Okay. There are many kinds of relational theism. Different all, kinds. Yeah, and they all have in common that God changes in relation to the world. That's what I yeah. mean by relational. And and that can big range of things. So um, you have one layer the kind of idea of social trinity where God is a community of persons and that given who God is in his nature, that's how we can maybe shape society. Uh, but what ends up ha seems to happen is that our observations of society then get read back into God, <laughs> which is like not entirely helpful. In in our group, uh, we sometimes do this at, with with the ideas of like hierarchy and subordination in human relationships. 
and inject them back into how we think God is. Given that God's transcendent, like, tell me what the error is than what I'm doing. Like, why is it wrong for me to say my marriage relationship is an image of who God is? Like, is that bad to do? Is that wrong to do? Is it the wrong order? Where is my problem in thinking? Um, well, if we're thinking about the issue of eternal functional subordination, that's as it. by Grudem and Ware and people like that, the idea there is that that the internal, eternal, the eternal Trinity itself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as God exists eternally, that there is a subordination, a functional subordination in that Trinity, such that the Son submits to the will of the Father. That's a problem because it is um, it is it, it, it's impossible, in my opinion, to really make sense out of a claim that the Son submits his will to the Father unless you posit separate wills on the part of the Father and the Son. And if you do that, then you no longer have one will in God, and then you no longer have monotheism. You are moving into polytheism. So the only so so the the problem there is that we are reading creaturely reality, and what's happened is, of course, that we know that the Son, in his um, in the incarnation, that the incarnate Son Jesus Christ submits his will to the Father, but actually the human Jesus is submitting his human will to his divine will. Uh, see the difference between the Son eternally and Jesus incarnate is that the Son eternally is part of the Trinity. The three all have one will, but in the incarnation, Jesus Christ, the God-man, has two wills. He has a human will and a divine will. And so it is true that we see Jesus praying in the garden, you know, you know, Father, if, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, and if not, then I will submit to it. That's the human will of Jesus being brought into alignment with the divine will of both Father and Son, which is undivided. But in that situation, it's easy if we're not careful in doing theology to take that that feature of the economy. It's a it's a reality because he's become incarnate, because there's a human will involved, that there's a submission going on, and we read that back into the eternal Trinity. That's the problem. the The issue about the marriage and and seeing God, you know. Before you jump there, can I just note you're 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 maintaining the transcendence of God, the Word while being united to humanity as a true and genuine human person. I think it's just important to reiterate, but sorry, keep going. Oh, yes, absolutely. The whole point of Chalcedon is that the two natures do not change or become mixed or become a third thing, or they, they, the human and the divine natures remain fully human. Jesus remains fully human as the, the divine logos assumes a human nature into union with itself, but it does not become that human nature, and it doesn't turn into a third thing mixed with the human nature. It remains what it is eternally and always, mm-hmm. always has and always will. Mm-hmm. So, and, and the church did that. The church did the de- definition of Chalcedon because otherwise they would be undermining the Trinity mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, turning, and, and turning the Trinity into uh, polytheism, as the Muslims accuse them of doing. And as lots of people accuse them of doing. And so the the whole point of not, the problem with the 20th century is that people want to be Trinitarian without being careful to be fully monotheistic in doing so. That, that's that's the, the whole thing in a nutshell. But the problem with Grudem and Ware and, and so on, I've always said that 
the the analogy of the human Christ submitting to the Father as a paradigm for a wifely submission in marriage. Their whole point is that if a wife submits to her husband, she is not ontologically inferior thereby, because that's proven by the fact that the son is not ontologically inferior to God, and he submits. Well, there is truth in, in the sense that the human Jesus is fully, Jesus Christ is one person and he's fully divine, even as in his humanity, he submits his will to the Father, to the divine will. So, yeah, it is true that, that but, but I, I don't know why we have to go to the Trinity. Like, we already know this. Like, if, if, um, if, if the president of Tyndale is my boss, I have to submit my will to my boss. But that doesn't make me ontologically inferior. It means we've performed separate roles and functions. And, and she's as much human and I, as I am, and I'm as much human as she is, but she has a different role, and therefore I have to obey what she says. If she says, mm-hmm. you get a raise next year, I get a raise. And if she says, I don't, I don't. So, so you don't, so Grudem's point is well taken. The fact that the feudal knight owes allegiance to the feudal lord doesn't make the feudal knight ontologically inferior. True. You know, but you didn't need the Trinity to know that. But but the point, and, and even if you do use Christ in his humanity, submitting to the Father and be remaining fully divine, you can still use that that analogy if you want to. But where I object is where we start reading what is true of the incarnation into the eternal trinity. Mm-hmm. That's the mis- that's a theological mistake. Because if you if you the more you take that seriously, the more it pushes you towards some, some form of subordinationism. And the church, it, it's like the church been there, done that. Like we we already had that. Oh, that's already settled. We we're not going back there. Mm-hmm. Well, and as you noted too, like there, there's this the whole set of presuppositions and ideas, metaphysics, approach to scripture. It's not really about the methods, but it's what underlies all of that. And so I think you, I mean, some people today, you can, you can affirm the linguistic phrase eternal generation, but then what do you, if you define that as a relation of, you know, submission from son to father in God, you haven't really affirmed the actual doctrine itself because you're not affirming the actual ideas that underlay the, the pro-Nicene doctrine of eternal generation. Now, you haven't said that. I've said that. Um, and I want to clarify because that was a little bit of a dig at Bruce Ware and um, Wayne Grudem, who now affirm that language. But I'm not sure that they've actually changed their view of the actual theological item from what I've seen anyways. Well, I, I did an article on this in Credo recently on Grudem's second edition of the Systematic Theology. And... Um, he wants to affirm even not only eternal generation, but uh, one will in God. But then he, but then what he gives with the right hand, he takes back with the left because he then he then wants to talk about different expressions of the one will by father and son. And mm-hmm. I still think he's uh, I still think that's uh, that's not adequate. Um, Grudem, I think the the problem for me is that Grudem has not um, abandoned his biblicism. And biblicism is a hard word to define, but it's it's a very important term for getting at the difference between the kind of theology that evangelicals often do and the kind of theology that characterizes the great tradition. Um, the great tradition is not biblicist. The great tradition is different. And and how do we how do we define the difference between evangelical biblicism and the great tradition? 
uh, is very important today because this is um, this is to me the cutting edge of where uh, growth in future evangelical theology is going to take place. This is this is where evangelicals are at the moment. Um, the best of them are transcending biblicism, and some of them are still stuck in it. And this is the biggest, probably the biggest divide I think in evangelical theology going forward. And uh, I think that the liberal wing, which is leaving evangelicalism and going into liberalism, is the the wing that is biblicist. And this is fascinating because some people associate biblicism with fundamentalism, with conservatism. But I think that biblicism is a natural ally of liberal higher criticism. I think the higher critics are very biblicistic. And so um, I'm not surprised that that the biblicists would go liberal. Um, and I think that's the great danger. So sorting all this out is, is a great challenge for theologians today. I think it was Brevard. Childs who made the observation that when the historical critics began sort of doing their sort of assault on conservative Christianity, the conservatives responded by using the same methodology, attempting to prove the Bible is true by means of history and all the same kind of historical critical method. And it's a really interesting thing, and it kind of goes to what you were just saying. Biblicism is known to be maybe around fundamentalism and also liberalism. So, so why would these two groups share a similar approach to the Bible? And part of it is, I, I kind of wonder if the fundamentalists are, are responding and they're trying to prove the truth of things by using kind of a liberal methodology. And by kind of existing somewhere in the middle, we can do, uh, we can kind of maybe transcend biblicism. So how do we transcend biblicism? What do we do? Well, I, in the book, I try to analyze this in some depth. So I talk about J.P. Gabler's address to the, um, his inaugural address in 1797. And uh, what if, what the, what he, I, I sort of deconstruct it a little bit because I, 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 I argue that what he's really doing is this. He's, he's saying, when you interpret the Bible, don't read the creeds into the Bible. Don't use the creeds as your grid. Don't, don't use church dogma to give you um, your entree into uh, how you do your exegesis. But put all that aside. For, forget about it. Forget you even, even know about the Nicene Creed. Don't, don't even let that come into your, your exegesis should be purely neutral and scientific. And it should be, it's just applied philology. It's just uh, archaeology and history. It's not, it's not anything to do with theology. We're just going to study the Bible. And... Um, and, and if you buy that, like if, if, if you buy into this whole idea that it's more scientific to be objective and neutral and so on, that's where conservatives get sucked into the whole modern approach to the Bible. But what we need to see is there's, there's a shell game going on here. You've got to keep your eye on the P. What has happened is that no exegesis can be done without some presuppositions. Like no matter if even if you set aside your concept of creation, God, creation, providence, and human sinners reading an inspired text, even if you put that whole metaphysical description of the reading event to, the, to one side, you can't read without assuming some metaphysical description. So what happens is that you end up assuming this philosophical naturalist set of metaphysical presuppositions. And so liberal, in the 19th century, you can see that, that Wellhausen is just Hegel applied to the Bible. 
like he, the, you know, F.C. Bauer. It's just, it's just reading a Hegelian concept of history using that as your metaphysics. And Hegel was a complete man of the Enlightenment. He was a complete philosophical naturalist. This world is all there is. There's nothing beyond it. So, so what's happened is that instead of reading the Bible in the light of the creeds and confessions, we're now reading the Bible in the light of Hegelian and Kantian metaphysical presuppositions. And so because we have, we're still reading the Bible metaphysically, but we're pretending not to be because mm -hmm. we've set aside the, the creeds and now we're supposedly secular. But this is what, when, when evangelicals, you know, let themselves be backed into this corner, we're trying to defend the miraculous on the basis of a non-miraculous idea of history, like mm -hmm. a non-miraculous uh, metaphysical worldview. Well, you you can't. I think like it's not going to be possible. So what, this is what I call the liberal project: is trying to make interpret the Bible and interpret doctrine in the light of modern metaphysics, modern naturalist metaphysics. So what this means is, every year we decide how much territory to surrender or under this year. Every year we decide how far back to retreat. It's as if you have two armies and two countries. And at first the, 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 line, the, the, the line is on the border, but every year it's a matter of how far back into our own country do we retreat. So we give up, um, so maybe this year we give up uh, the literal six days of creation. And then next year we give up maybe um, the, the literal Garden of Eden, and then pretty soon we give up the historical Adam, and then we give up the fall. Like, like where do we, this, this game, we cannot win this game. The game is rigged against us. The only thing we can do is to lose by as low a score as possible. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a, a hockey game where, where, you know, suppose one team starts out with a hundred goals and the other team with zero. And if you play really, really well for 60 minutes, you might end up losing 90 to nothing or maybe 80 to nothing if you're really good. And, and but that's the only hope. We, the idea of winning is ludicrous. We're never going to win. It's not going to be possible. So, so I'm, I'm just saying, let's not play the game anymore. Let's just not, let's just change the rules. Let's just say, nope, not going to play that game. Uh, we're not assuming naturalism. Actually, we think naturalism is a heresy from the pit of hell and is totally wrong. So actually, we're going to have our own our own metaphysical framework. And at the end of the day, when we interpret the Bible according to the creeds and confessions for a generation or two or three or four or five, and you interpret the Bible according to modern metaphysics for a generation or two or three or four or five, we'll see who we'll see which group still has a functioning Christian church. My prediction is that the longer the liberal project goes on, the more the same thing is going to happen as happened to the church of Eunomius. Mm -hmm. Eunomius in the fourth century had a church. It lasted for two or three generations and faded away. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think we win by playing the liberal game. I think we win by refusing to play it. Something you said were, was that we are pretending that we have, we don't have metaphysics. We've got rid of it all, but really everybody does have certain assumptions. So you mentioned naturalism. And we've sort of collapsed the transcendent into our horizontal realm. I think even just like an average person, we can kind of fall into this trap by accident because society is a very scientific society, which restricts the amount of things we're able to observe according to what science can observe. So basically the sensible realm. So even I think the average Bible reader sometimes 
we can kind of fall into the trap of reading the Bible as if it's just a number of, of beautiful poems and texts that encourage us. And sometimes you'll see connections between a verse here and a verse there. But you forget that this it is a true and genuine revelation of God through which the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. And also that the Bible talks about real things in this creation around us that are effective and real and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, as we kind of dial our, our time down, I have a question. Um, how did you convince your publisher to let them put your picture on the cover of this book? Yes, that's Isaiah. Oh, okay. <laughs> this, is, this is a painting by a French painter. It's a painting of Isaiah. So I have Simeon and Anna on the picture of the first book, and I have Isaiah on this book. Don't know who's going to be on the third book, but... Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, um, no, I that I, I definitely have a shorter beard than him. Although I may look as crazy as him, I'm supposed to be in in rapture receiving revelation in this picture. You know, it's useful to note, and we haven't yet, that the the middle chunk of your book is an exposition of of Isaiah forty to forty eight. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about all this kind of classical theism, but it, it arises from the biblical text. It is not foreign to or an imposition upon it? Well, the book is an experiment. Okay, so I'm here's my premise. I'm supposing this. Um, you know, remember how I was saying that, that Nicene theology has exegesis, doctrine, metaphysics, then the metaphysics becomes the context for further exegesis. So I call this the concept of second exegesis. Mm -hmm. And as I'm trying to make the point that you don't just do exegesis once, leave it behind, then construct your magnificent systematic cathedral and leave the Bible behind and the Bible is no longer. In other words, the Bible is not just sources. The Bible is the, the means by which God speaks in the world. So study of the Bible and exposition, exegesis of the Bible, it, preaching of the Bible is the highest form of theology, not, not uh, something that happens later after that. So you have this, this spiral going on. And what I'm suggesting is, so at an earlier stage when I had some people read this book and give me feedback, they, they wanted me to present Isaiah and to lay out the case for classical theism in Isaiah, and then to present in the next section of the book, explain simplicity and immutability and all the elements of classical theism and say, now I, you should believe in classical theism because we've proven that it's biblical. And I resisted that. I, I said, no, I don't think that's the way to do it. So what I do in the book is in part one, I define class, Trinitarian classical theism. I, I spell out, this is what the church has believed about the doctrine of God between 381 and the enlightenment. The, the class 1500 years, classical doctrine of God, locus classicus, the first 43 uh, questions of the Summa Theologica, but presupposed by the reformers, presupposed by the post-Reformation scholastics, presupposed by the founders of evangelicalism. This classical understanding of God has undergirded the church right through to the catechism of the Catholic church. It's right through to today. Now, after stating what the church has believed about God, I then, in, in an act of, I think, being radical, I say, okay, supposing we believe all this, how does Isaiah 40 to 48 look? What do we see in Isaiah 40 to 48? 
and as I and my so the one third of the book is is on those eight chapters. And my, the point of of spending all that time on that section is because, of course, it is one of the high points in Scripture as far as the um, doctrine of God is concerned. And what I'm trying to show is that when you read Isaiah 40 to 48, starting from the the presupposition of Trinitarian classical theism, that Isaiah 40 to 48 opens itself up and its meaning becomes so clear. And what you derive from studying it is so profound and so incredibly important and moving and, and earth shattering that it just shows that, that the two harmonize together. And then the third section of the book is an attempt to pound the nails in on that by looking at the fourth century and comparing the doctrine of God in the fourth century to the doctrine of God in Isaiah. And what I'm basically trying to argue is that, that the reason that the creeds and the confessions of the Protestant confessions assume Trinitarian classical theory, the reason they teach it is because it comes from scripture and because it comes from scripture, it illumines in even deeper resources in scripture. That's the, that's the, the experiment that I'm carrying out in this book. I'm trying to show that um, this, is an, this is an example of what I mean. Instead of just propounding a theory of hermeneutics, well, this is how you should read the Bible, should you ever decide to read the Bible. Instead, I'm just reading the Bible using this, this approach. And I'm saying, so what do you think? Is this fruitful? Is this a good way to read scripture? Does this result in increased understanding? Or when you read um, some book of higher criticism, that rearranges the pieces of, of Isaiah all over the board into different, do you find more, more profundity there? Like the proof's in the pudding. What do you think? That, that's the, that's the message of the book. Yeah. You're, you're helping us to read Isaiah in a sense. Um, I think you're also showing that uh, nature and grace are not opposed. I think you're showing that uh, there is one God who is observable through the two books, the book of, and the Belgic Confession of uh, 1561 says that God reveals himself in two ways. One is the, the book of nature, and then also the book of scripture, which is more clear. Um, there's no kind of antithesis, I think, in your, if I, if I read you right, you don't see an antithesis between the, the God of the philosophers and the God of the Bible, because it's the same God. It's one God who's real. Or how, how would you put that? Well, yes, there's only one God, and the philosophers had a, they dimly perceived this God. Perfect, yeah. They had a, they had an inadequate um, understanding of God, which uh, revelate, special revelation clarifies. And uh, the words I use are supplement and correct. The special revelation supplements and corrects general revelation. And you can see this even in the way that I um, approach Isaiah, because I believe that the gods of the nations are real. Uh, I believe that the gods of Babylon and Assyria and Egypt are actual beings that exist. And they are, um, they are fallen, they are what we would normally call fallen angels, although I would argue that angels may not be the best term for them, because there's a whole lot of terms used in scripture. Um, Paul in, in Ephesians 6 lists a number of them, uh, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, and so on. And some of, the some of these names are very mysterious. We don't know exactly how they work. We don't know how the hierarchy is organized. We, so much we don't know. But some of them do definitely point to ruling functions more so than just carrying message functions. So the, most of the angels, the, the, um, the, the angels in Hebrew and Greek, uh, the, the word used there 
um, refer to two main things. Uh, they are messengers and they are members of the Lord's army. But there are other beings that, that have ruling functions, organizing functions. They're delegated. They have, they have uh, responsibility delegated to them by the creator. They, they're part of the metaphysical furniture of the universe. They, they are, they're ruling the universe. They're keeping things straight. Um, and some of them have gone astray. They have rebelled and they have become evil. So I actually think that some of the mythology of the ancient Near East has truth in it. Like I think that um, I think some of this mythological stuff is actually talking about real beings who actually did reveal things to these the founders of these ancient civilizations and and the knowledge was passed down. But because I believe they're fallen and malevolent, I believe they deliberately deceived the nations in giving them revelation. And the way they deceived them, you know, everybody knows the best way to deceive somebody is a mixture of truth and error. Like if you just tell somebody, if everything that comes out of your mouth is, is, is obviously wrong and false, people will get that after a while and they won't trust you. So you've got to tell them lots of true things and then mix in the error in such a way as to mislead them. And so they don't notice the error when they get it. So mm -hmm. one of the ways that these mythological or these, um, these uh, supernatural beings misled the nations was by the where they started their story. It's a misnomer to call Enuma Elish a creation story. It's not a creation story. It's a rearrangement of eternally existing matter story. It's uh, it's not about creation at all. It's about it's about a battle, and it's a cyclical thing. There's there's chaos, and then there's order, and then there'll be more chaos, and then there'll be order again, and it goes on and on forever. That's not true. And those beings knew it wasn't true. Those gods that revealed themselves to Babylon, they tricked them. They told them lies. They they know full well that Yahweh exists and he's the eternal creator. Mm. They left him out of the story on purpose because they wanted themselves to be the, the, the right. center of the story. They wanted to direct worship to themselves. When you think about it in those terms, you realize that... Um, well, it's no wonder that that natural theology contains a mixture of truth and error. When you, when you add to take the fact that the beings who originally revealed these things were deliberately being deceptive, and then you take into account the fact that we human beings um, are often stupid and we often forget and we often mix things up, and you add that to the mix, it's no wonder that that there's lots of things wrong with pagan religion. But it's also no wonder, as C.S. Lewis never tired of pointed out, pointing out, that there's a lot of true things in in pagan religion mixed in with the era. Mm -hmm. But I mean, to me, the theory account for both. I think of uh, Daniel. So he prays, and he's waiting for an answer to prayer, and an angel comes. But a, the prince of Persia confronts that messenger, and delays him. I think for three weeks until Michael, the archangel, comes and. and the message gets through. It's a pretty clear example of some of the things that you're you're talking about. Well, um, it's an example at least that this is how the biblical writers thought. At least how they thought, yeah. At the very least, you know, no matter how much of a scientific materialist you may be, at the very least, you have to admit that if you're going to think your way into uh, understanding what the Bible is saying, you've got to think in those terms. You've got to think about about that, and you might say, "Oh, I'm, I'm not. I'm nervous about thinking mythologically. I, I, I don't want to think that way." And all I can say is, "Well, you know, if you 
if you're serious about studying this text, this is how the text presents it. Hmm. Uh, final question is beyond your book, Contemplating God with a Great Tradition, what other books should someone read who's really curious about uh, rediscovering Trinitarian classical theism, <laughs> your subtitle? What are the books that come to mind that you found really helpful that you could recommend? Um, well, um, I just posted on my uh, newsletter or my Substack a, a, a an article on Scott Swain's little book on the Trinity in mm -hmm. the Swain Introduction to Short Short Introduction to Systematic Theology series. I think Swain's book is is absolutely um, a classic because it is so it is it is so convincing in the way that it shows the biblical basis of the Trinity. I think uh, I think that uh, we should mail one to every Jehovah's Witnesses household. Um, it's really, really amazing, like that. Um, I think that the um, the work of Michael Allen and Scott Swain, mm. uh, Fred Sanders, um, uh, there are a number of people who are who are doing excellent stuff these days in this whole area. I mentioned some of them in the book, um, um, and and if John Fesco and and uh, um, um, oh. A, I'm blanking on names, but there are so many. Uh, we're living in a time of, I think, uh, a revival of classical theism. Uh, Stephen Duby is writing some amazing books. Mm. He's got one coming out on Jesus and classical theism in another year or so, and that's going to be great. Um, James Dozell is doing good work. Um, yeah, it would be so uh, interesting to look around my library and just look at some more. Uh, increasingly, like up until now, it has been necessary to read Catholic and Anglican authors to to get good studies in patristics and and uh, and good studies of the Trinity. Gilles Emery, uh, Louis Ayers, um, people like that. Increasingly, evangelicals are producing material that is uh, uh, of of real real importance. Um, maybe I should just say that that. When you read a book on the Trinity, um, look for who is being interacted with in that book. Like who who is that book um, talking about? Who which whose ideas? And if if they're if the book is engaging in depth with Augustine and Aquinas, then you know you're probably dealing with a book that is going to present classical theism in a in a in a good way. Um, if you read a book on the Trinity and all it interacts with are 20th century figures, you're probably in trouble. Um, so, so this is this is not good. Uh, another book that's really, really, um, I would highly recommend is Stephen Holmes' book, The Quest for the Trinity. Um, it's uh, it's more accessible than Lewis Ayer's Nicaea and its legacy, but in many ways it promote it explains the same thing as Ayer's does. Uh, by showing the difference between the classical tradition and the the 20th century so-called revival, the Bart, Rahner, Pannenberg, Jensen, Moltmann, uh, Boff, and and all that sort of thing, uh, he's really he really shows the difference um, mm -hmm. in in, in an accessible way. So that that's very important. Um, yeah, there are so many, and uh, if you're if any of your listeners are interested, they can contact me on Twitter, and, and I can. Um, give them uh, some uh, reading lists. Sounds good. Thanks for talking to me today, Craig. I appreciate it. 
Oh, you're very welcome.